Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at 1 Samuel tonight. We're going to spend a number of weeks in 1 and 2 Samuel. It, the first thing you should know is that in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, these books are not split into two parts. It's, it's one big book, so that's sort of an editorial decision and a tradition of English translation to split these into two, but it's one, one big book, and, and also that makes sense given that it's, uh, the focus of the, the two books is, is one thing and is... Um, is a transitional period in the life of of uh, Israel. Let's read the first chapter. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jer- Jerohim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept. And would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, 
Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord. And stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Now, First Samuel, some background, some context. We, you remember before I went through the sermons on, on our Savior, on Jesus, that we uh, went through the book of Judges. And Judges is the, uh, there's overlap between, essentially between these books. And uh, it appears that Samuel and Samson, parts of their lives overlap. So to put it in context, there's, um, we're coming out of the period of the judges, where the judges rule. In fact, Samuel is the last of the judges. He's called a judge in 1 Samuel seven fifteen. It says that he judged Israel all his life. Samuel is also called a prophet, uh, a seer, and uh, and so he's um, he's in a sense holding all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, uh, but certainly uh, prophet and king, judging and ruling, and then um, acts as the anointer of the first king of Israel. The, um, the book covers about 125 years of history, century and a quarter, century and a half, somewhere in there, and uh, 1140 B.C., 1015 B.C., so thousand or so, 1,100 years before Christ. Um, This is the end of the age of the judges. What was the characteristic of the time period of the judges? Okay. Keep going. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it seems that doing right in your own eyes is somehow tied to not having a king. We'll navigate those waters once we get to um, later into the book. 
Saul, some of the characters in the book you know are Samuel, obviously, um, Saul, the first king, King David, and the, the books work through to the end of his reign. In First Kings, it begins with David as an old man dying and transitioning the kingdom to his son Solomon through some difficulties with his other son who's trying to take the kingdom. And so First and Second Samuel essentially become about David. These are the books that chronicle the life of King David. And King David is a type in Scripture. And much reference is made of King David in the New Testament. Um, The main foe of Israel during this time is whom? The Philistines, and that's who Samson had to do battle with as well. So Samson... And uh, the king, the and Saul, and Samuel are dealing with the Philistines. Um, how bad has it gotten? It's gotten so bad that the the tabernacle is in shambles, and the Ark of the Covenant is removed and taken away, and the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. So. Um, that that is that it's chronicled in chapters four through six, and so the sanctuary, which at this time is in Shiloh, it's it's in shambles. Uh, there's a word that's used to describe the the situation in Israel. Does anybody remember that word? Ichabod. Ichabod. And what does Ichabod mean? Glory has departed. There are no sacrifices. The Levitical system is not running. Uh, things are bad as far as the priests. Eli, Eli's sons are not uh, good priests. They are not ruling well. They are scoundrels, in fact. And in chapter 4, verse 21, that end of the chapter is when we learn about um, that boy named Ichabod. Verse 21, and she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. Okay, so so <laughs> this is this is a a difficult time period, but difficult in the same sense that Judges is four hundred years of apostasy and return, and apostasy and return. Right, Judges is constant apostasy as well as constant repentance, right? As God has mercy on the people and raises up a judge. And so here we are coming into this, once again, these cycles, and um, now there will be something different coming ahead as the people request a king and deal with this. So the sanctuary is in shambles, and then at the end of the book, at the end of Second Samuel, 
one of the last things that we, we see is the land is purchased for the temple. Um, King David buys the threshing uh, field of, of uh, I'm blanking on the name right now. What? Aruna. That's it. And, and so, so it's one of the themes of the book here is we're going from, temp, from tabernacle to temple. Now, we know David doesn't get to construct the temple because he's a, he's a man of bloodshed and it's part of the discipline of the Lord. And so Solomon is the one to build the temple. But David lays up store so that they have everything they need to build that temple. That's one of the, one of the transitions over the course of this book is from tabernacle through to temple, um, to this this permanent structure uh, for the sacrifices of God. This is all uh, the other obvious transition I mentioned is judges to kings. Samuel, the last judge, Saul, the first king, David, the greatest king. In a sense, save one. Some would say that the, the height of the kingdom is with Solomon. David is more of a type and comes into play um, in the New Testament. Now, the, um, another theme of the books is fathers and sons. Fathers and sons throughout this book. What were the sons of Eli like? What were the sons of Samuel like? They were terrible. What were the sons of Saul like? Not bad. What were the sons of David like? Mixed bag. Mixed bag. What about the sons of Solomon? Not so good. (laughs) Split the kingdom. So, I mean, you think about this. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, it it says of them, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. It says they don't know the Lord. Eli has been ruling as a priest in Israel. His sons are, are afflicting the people. Samuel has sons, Joel and Abijah, And it says of them, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons. Okay, so they're they're afflicting the people as well. And then Saul, well, you got Jonathan. And his, his name means the Lord has given. And then you have Ishvi, Malkishua, Abinadab. Eshbaal. So by the end, is naming his children Man of Baal. And um, and so, you know, some of this, I mean, Jonathan is a blessing to the kingdom. He's a blessing to King David. But others are um, not a blessing to them. And uh, in the end, seven sons are killed by the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 21. Saul's sons are killed because of of Saul's actions against the Gibeonites. We'll come to that. And then David has many children, many wives. Um, You have Amnon. 
What did Amnon do? Committed incest with Tamar and murdered Absalom, one of David's other sons. You have Daniel, you have Absalom, um, you have Adonijah. What does Adonijah do? He's the one who leads rebellion against the kingdom and attempts to take the place of Solomon, who has been promised the kingdom. And then you have a bunch of, of sons that, uh, you have, that don't factor in to, uh, to the story. Shephatiah, Ithraim, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Eliphalet, Nogah, Naphig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphalet, and a daughter named Tamar. Now, some of those children are born in Hebron, which is 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. David obviously can't be in Jerusalem. And then the rest are born in the city of Jerusalem when he is ruling from there. Um, what other points of, of introduction? Well, I mean, thinking through this, thinking through the fact that we're going from tabernacle to temple, we're going from judges to kings, we're going from a loose affiliation of the tribes to more central structure, we're we're following the generational leadership, we're we're seeing failures of, of fathers to to uh, to hand on the faith to their sons, we're seeing. Um, sons who are in affliction. To, I mean, all these things are, are going on at this time. And, and I've been mentioning a bunch of men, and I've been mentioning kings and transitions and power, and yet what does this book start with? A woman. And what kind of woman? A What? Yeah, apparently so, but not what I'm shooting for. A barren woman. A book of transitions, a book of changes begins with a barren woman whose womb is opened by the Lord, which um, may be one of the um, big transitions and changes that's laid out here. And so this all begins with the prayer of a barren woman, a, a, a barren woman crying out to God about what? Her barrenness, the deadness of her womb. Right? That is what she's crying out for. And so this book about the people of God and the kingdom of Israel starts with a barren woman crying out about the deadness of her womb. And in the deadness of her womb is changed by God, who opens her womb, who remembers hers the way that Scripture puts it, who makes her fruitful, who changes her, who brings life out of deadness. And so the starting point is zero, nothing, barrenness. And the ending point is is life and fruitfulness. So this is nothing new, right? This is a theme of Scripture. How many barren women can we, can we 
uh, name who were not happy about the fact that they were barren and who cried out to God that he would take away their curse and the deadness of their womb. What other women did so? Sarah's the first. She, she cried out, as did her husband, right? And Isaac is born. Rachel as well, and Jacob is born. Rebecca as well, and Joseph and Benjamin are born. All of whom save Israel, right? All of whom deliver Israel. Samson's mother, right? You remember Samson's mother cried out. She was barren, and she cried out, Judges 13. And then we have Hannah. And then we have the Shunammite woman, uh, Elisha. Uh, Elisha uh, promises her that she would have a son, and she does. And um, and then who else? Elizabeth. And she gives birth to whom? John the Baptist. And so, so here we have uh, again. Um, here we have again that 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 God brings something out of nothing, right? This is God making something out of nothing. He's taking what seems impossible and he is changing everything according to the prayers of a woman who cried out for the barrenness of her womb. Now in a day where the womb is made barren by the choice of women and men, I want to honor women who have had children. I honor women who give their bodies up to this, to the propagation of a godly seed. This is your glory. This is the glory um, that God has, has given to his church and for the same purpose, that he makes something out of nothing, right? That he builds up his kingdom, his family um, through this use of the body, Right? Psalm 113.9, he gives barren women a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Right? That's good. But, it, but it's a rebuke to us. I mean, barrenness, and I, and I have to mention this, but barrenness is now is elective and is promoted and is seen as good stewardship and is seen as the very opposite of what Scripture defines barrenness as, which is a curse, right? Which is something that we cry, would cry out to the Lord to remove. But so many today um, choose barrenness um, instead. And that I will not honor. Nor should we. You think about you think about First Timothy two, and there it says women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint. Now we know that that verse applies to the birth of Christ, and we can get all cosmic about it, but and take away the obvious thing, which is that this actually applies to all women giving birth, right? All women embracing the fact that God has given them a womb with which to bear children. And so there is blessing that comes through fruitfulness. 
I mean, do I even have to say that? Isn't that strange? Blessing that comes through fruitfulness. I mean, that's almost a redundant, it's a completely redundant statement. But here's Calvin, what he says about that 1 Timothy 2.15 passage. He doesn't under-apply it and say it only applies to the birth of Christ. He says it applies across the board to women. And he says, Whatever hypocrites or wise men of the world may think of it, when a woman, considering to what she has been called, submits to the condition which God has assigned to her, and does not refuse to endure the pains, or rather the fearful anguish, or anxiety about her offspring, or anything else that belongs to her duty, God values this obedience more highly than if in some other manner she made a great display of heroic virtues while she refused to obey the calling of God. Right? Do you understand what he's saying? What he's saying is we shouldn't honor the woman who closes her womb so that she can go fight in battle and play the man. But rather we should honor the woman who, who obeys God in the manner in which she was assigned, right, according to her calling. And that, again, it's... It's revolutionary today, right, to say anything along those lines. Men are called to deny their sexuality, as are women, and certainly fruitfulness has to do with that. But God values the obedience of the mother of children more than the respected and glorious work of the woman who, forsaking that calling, joins the military and earns decoration after decoration after decoration, outdoing all the men in her battalion. And so I'm not going to be bamboozled on that point, nor should you. Hannah's glory is her prayers for a child. Hannah's glory is her prayers to fulfill what God has called her to, right? Not her finding of some lesser glory to quell her, the other desires. Childbearing is glorious. God declares so, and we have said otherwise. Okay, and so I honor those women who carry child now. I honor them. You're following in the glorious path of Hannah and you carrying on the godly seed of God's kingdom. But with childbearing comes child rearing. Okay, it's not enough just to be fruitful, right? We don't just want crazy fruitfulness without the attendant difficulties that go along with that, right? The responsibilities that come with that. Quantity is not the point. It is not the point at all. God is the one who opens the womb. Raising a godly seed is the point. Deuteronomy 6, teaching your children all that God has taught you is the point. But now think of Hannah and Elkanah in this respect. Hannah has prayed and she's made a vow. Do you think she knows Eli? you think maybe she knows Eli's sons? 
I think she probably does. This is where the sacrifices are taking place. This is the center. It's centered in Shiloh. And she makes a vow that she would give up what God had given to her to the temple, knowing that who's going to be the father of her child? Eli. Eli would be. Right? And he would be around Hophni and Phinehas, those scoundrels, those men who were oppressing the people of God. And so she waits until he's weaned, right? She, she nurses him, and this was likely in, in that time until he was about three. And then when he's three, just three, she takes him and offers him up as a sacrifice to God. Paying this vow that she made before the Lord to give him over to Eli. But think about that. Think about her doing that, entrusting her prayed for son, entrusting, I mean, crying out the, the man who accused her of being drunk because of her prayers. This is the man that she will be entrusting her Samuel to. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but you but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Notice what she says of herself. She says that she's a maidservant. She's not her own. Right? She's not her own. What she's called to is not herself. She's called as a maidservant of the Lord. She's a slave to God. And every mother must remember that. Every mother should remember that should, those words should go through your head after you've had a day where you want to pull your hair out and disciplining your children. No, no. Maidservant of the Lord. Right? I serve the Lord. As I serve my children, bond servant of God, you serve God as this as a steward of your children. Um, your children, just like Samuel, your children do not exist in order to fulfill your emotions. They don't exist in order to make your life wonderful. They are a stewardship from God. And I think Hannah understood this. One, she had made a vow. And so she locked herself into it, but she also understood this and gave him back to the Lord as a sacrifice. These are God's children and precious to him, and you serve him as you serve them. Do you remember this? On those long days, remember that you serve God as you serve them. You serve God as you serve them. Every day, Hannah had to pray for, for Samuel as she gave him up. And gave him over to the temple service. They're God's children. They're precious to him. You serve him as you serve them. You too are made servants of the Lord. It, it, says, it says of Samuel that he would be made over to the Lord. Right? That's a good way to think about your children and the task of parenting in general. Your children are to be made over to the Lord. That's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're getting them 
to be productive so that they might be the Lord's, right? And, and for some reason, God has asked us as parents, sinful, fallible parents, to, to do that stewardship. But the goal is to make them over to the Lord, right? To make them worshipers of God who then will do the same thing for their own children, right? And on and on generationally. Now, um, also, uh, I mentioned this before, her barrenness is her affliction. Now, think of the, afflic- the, the, um, the intensity of her affliction. What adds to her affliction? This is not an honorable thing. Imagine, the, imagine this affliction. Imagine your husband has another wife and she's... Crazy fruitful. She's having child after child. Right? This is not an honorable thing that Elkanah had two wives. Right? This is... But but his, his other wife... His other wife rub, just, just went after Hannah. And even pointed out the fact that she was barren. Right? Year after year... That she was barren. Now, Elkanah tried to make it up to her by giving her double portions and, 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 you know, am I not better to you than ten sons? Well, do you really want me to answer that? You know, and she, you know, that there are these gestures that we read of. We don't know the tone. We don't know what's going on there, but, but certainly Hannah um, desires to be fruitful as this other wife is fruitful. And then there's the, resp- you know, and, and all of it is expressed in this statement that she was a woman oppressed in spirit. She was a woman that was oppressed in spirit. She was beaten down. She was afflicted by this other woman, by her barrenness, by her unfruitfulness, by the unfulfilled desires that she had. And then she has this responsibility that, that again, um, this is an intense prayer, isn't it? Give, and I will give up. Give, Lord, and I will give up. Have you ever prayed like that? And meant it. Give, Lord, the increase, and I will give it up. Give, Lord, the blessing. Give the child, and I will give it up. Whatever that might mean. In this case, for her, it meant give it up. Right? Like, hand over this child to be dedicated to the Lord in in a special sort of Nazarite relationship. That razor never coming upon the head. We could go into Leviticus and read about that. The same... same, Promise the same vow that was made by Samson's mother, right? Not to eat of the fruit of the vine and not to cut the hair of the head. And um, she has made this vow. Give, Lord, and I will give up. Made so much easier by that rivalry, right? By those other children running around the house. Made so much easier, right, to make this prayer. I mean, think of the faith of this prayer. 
do you think she as a sinful woman wants to, wants to, you know, ha, to, to Penina? Fruitful now. Look at my beautiful child. But no, she weans him and gives him up to the Lord. But she has in mind something bigger than her own fulfillment. She has in mind something bigger than her own household. She has in mind the kingdom of God. She has in mind that her son is going to be used extraordinarily by the Lord. And that's what we get to next time in her song. And you see this song, and what is this song? It's filled with faith. It's filled with faith in the Lord, and it's filled with with foreshadowings of what's going to happen in the book. All these things, remember she's barren and it's zero, and she may be the one faithful one in Israel who sees ahead and sees that there are things coming and God building up his kingdom. Right? And that's the faith, I think that's the faith that any parent has to have. Why else would you bring children into this world? Right? You have, you have faith that God will build his kingdom, that God will use them for his glory. Right? Children, you have a job to do, and that's to glorify God. That's to glorify God. Right? To be a witness for Him. Right? I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. Verses 27 to 28. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him, so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. That's faith. That's wonderful faith. That's glorious faith. It's the faith that any mother or any father has to have in, in the bringing of children into this world. It's the faith that, that Elizabeth, all the barren women, had to have. It's the faith that Mary had to have. Right? What does it say of Mary and her relationship to her son? The sword would pierce her heart. Right As she sees her son Jesus being crucified, do you think it, it, it struck her as a mother, even as it did as a believer? Right? It struck her as a mother. And yet she had to have faith that this was about the kingdom, that this was God's work, that this was something that was glorious. And so God... You know what the the other thing that's so so wonderful out of this is God brings reformation revival. God brings growth, God brings fruitfulness through ordinary means. Through just ordinary means, right? Open wombs, babies, children, fruitfulness, dedicated children, even just this, faithful prayers. Hannah prayed, God answered that prayer. Hannah prayed, and the, the, the trajectory of Israel, 
is changed. Right? And think of Samuel's work. Think of the faithfulness of her son. Think of him hacking Agag to pieces. Right? Think of him grieving over Saul. Right? Think of him and, and his grief over the people calling out for a king, saying, you don't know what you're getting, right? And he, 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 he's standing there as a prophet before the people. There's also this, that I went back and said that if you go back and you look at fathers and sons, there are often sons, sons that are, are, are physical sons who become the worthless men. But Eli does have a son named Samuel, in a sense, right? Samuel is a father to Saul, though Saul goes bad. And, and so you see in the midst of this that, that God, draw, God adopts sons, in a sense, and draws them into this work. And that is a wonderful thing, right? And, and you, see God, you see God making something that seems to be absolutely, infinitely broken. Right? Solomon. Solomon comes out of the union of David and Bathsheba. David's greatest sin. Right? Solomon arises out of that. Right, and on and on we could go about these. And these are themes that we'll come back to through this book. But it is but there is no way you can talk about first Samuel and not talk about fruitfulness. You not cannot talk about barrenness and fruitfulness. And um, we live in a day and age of synthetic fruitlessness. And it's it's not just synthetic fruitlessness, it's faithlessness. It is faithlessness. God works through these ordinary means, and yet we forbid him to work through these ordinary means. We ask him to give a sign from heaven and won't, won't be simply obedient to what he has called us to. God brings reformation revival through ordinary means. Your prayers. Pray like Hannah. Pray. Pray with faith. God hears your prayers. Do you realize that? That God hears you when you pray? He does. He hears. And He desires to answer you according to His will. And so pray these faithful prayers. And dedicate your children to the service of the Lord. Right? That means pour into them. That means not just fruitfulness, but it means strength. Pour into your children so that they might be Samuels, so that they may look to Jesus Christ and be a blessing to the church. There are a few other things I want to mention. Yahweh Sabaoth is a name that starts in this book. Yahweh, Lord of Armies. Right? Sabaoth is armies, right? No, I don't think it's, uh, there's nothing in Scripture that's coincidence. And that that name pops up here um, is, 
is pointing toward the fact that, that God is the governor, right? The Lord of armies is God in heaven. Even as they ask for a king, that name comes into play in this book. Even as they ask for a king who might rule over their armies, God is called the Lord of armies. So it's even asserting his universal government as the God king, right? Even just in that name, okay? And then the last thing I'll I'll say is Hannah's first prayer is desperation. She's crying out. She's a woman oppressed in spirit. And then we'll come to this next thing. Next, um, next time, but her, her second prayer is hope. It's glorious exaltation. It's glorious trust. It's hope. It's, it's, it's happy. She's no longer a woman oppressed in spirit. She's a woman that's been unloosed to praise God. And that comes through the God, God answering her first prayer and opening her womb as a blessing to the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the the challenge it is to our faith. We thank you for the example of Hannah and her prayers. We thank you that that we can study a book that, that ultimately points to the birth of Christ through extraordinary means. And he being the greater David, he being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we see something of what it means to, to have a kingdom here. And yet it's a, it's a kingdom that, that is, is so much less than the perfect kingdom over which Jesus Christ presides and will eternally. So Lord, help us as we study this book to grow to apply it, to believe it, to the glory of your Son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.